Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Backchat, nature's monthly digest of the best of the newsroom. This month's edition is brought to you by robots and by a selection of possibly fake data all be revealed shortly. I'm Kerry Smith and joining me in the studio I have Lizzie Gibney. Hi Kerry, I'm a reporter, I write about physics here in London. And I have Richard Van Norden. Hi Kerry, I edit Nature's News from London. And on the line from Washington DC is Lauren Morello. Hey, I'm a news editor here in DC. Excellent. Now, coming up this month, research misconduct, scientists doing naughty things like maybe faking their data, plus an update on the latest of those such scandals. And we'll be meeting the robots that can recover from injury all by themselves. And of course, desperate to avoid an antibiotic resistance crisis, scientists are getting inventive and looking in some really odd places. So we're going to look at some of those as well. Now, first to the most gossipy of the stories that I just mentioned, scientists doing naughty things, otherwise known as research misconduct. Now, let's start with the recent case and then broaden out to the to the wider picture. The recent case I'm talking about is a paper published in Science at the end of last year that one author has asked to be retracted because of data irregularities. Now, Science published an editorial expression of concern a few days ago. They haven't yet retracted the paper. The study was about political canvassing, and it claimed that a 20-minute conversation with a gay canvasser could change someone's mind about voting in favour of same-sex marriage. And the first author was a UCLA grad student called Michael LaCour. Richard, Nature hasn't covered this story, has it, but it's been picked up a lot elsewhere in the media. Yeah, we didn't cover this story. It seems like uh, an almost standard, I hate to say it, but an almost standard case of someone apparently not doing what they said they did in a research paper, although we are still waiting as we talk about this for Michael LaCour's response, which is to come at the end of the week. And science has not yet published a retraction, so we shall see. But it seems uh, very likely from all the reporting that's been done that canvassing was done. Uh, People chatted to householders and said, what's your opinions? Uh, But no survey was ever sent out afterwards to see if people's opinions change as a result of the canvassing. And that is the data that Michael LaCour is alleged to have made up. But this wasn't spotted by his co-author, Donald Green, which is very embarrassing for him and suggests he should probably have paid closer to attention. But it was in the end spotted by researchers who were trying to do the study themselves. They were so surprised that LaCour had reported such a strong effect. 
And after they couldn't get a response rate as high as Lacour's, they looked into the data and found some suspicious patterns and eventually traced it all the way back to the surveying company who Lacour said had done the survey and said they had nothing to do with it. And it's emerged that Lacour has said he has lots of money from various foundations for his work, and all of them have said that they haven't given him any grant money at all. So it's all rather murky. I mean, what are we to take from this? We haven't covered it partly because we didn't cover the original story. We thought well, it's another another political science survey. Uh, but a lot of media who did cover that original story have covered the subsequent story very well. But to those of us who sort of watch this thing go on, we see loads of retractions every year, hundreds of retractions every year, some two-thirds of which approximately are due to fraud and misconduct. So in one sense, this story is a bit run-of-the-mill. Very few scientists commit fraud. Um, according to um, surveys, 2% of scientists admit to some kind of misconduct, which could be something like plagiarism or or um, missing off a data point, which is, of course, much less fraudulent than making up um, a survey altogether. Um, but only uh, 0.02 to 0.04% of papers are ever retracted. Think about any other profession you know. Would 98% of people in any other profession you know, be proudly able to say that they haven't ever committed any kind of misconduct? It seems unlikely. So that's why these kinds of fraud cases, these misconduct cases, stand out when they do happen. Yeah, so it seems like this case is just another one of those where we say, this guy, Lacour, maybe he was just a, a bad apple. But it's, it's interesting because the papers have obviously gone so big on it. And partly that might be because they covered it in the first place. So they feel maybe like they've had the wool pulled over their eyes to some extent. But there's a paragraph in um, in the New York Times' coverage, which kind of quite boldly said the case had shaken not only the community of political scientists, but also public trust in the way the scientific establishment vets new findings. And that brings us back to the question, is there something else that the scientific establishment could be doing here to stop cases like this happening? Retrospectively, you can always go back and say, oh, at this stage they should have done this, at this stage they should have done that. But I think it's really hard to stop things like this happening. And it's obviously just on such a massive stage now because of who reported on it and in the fact that it came out in science. But maybe, you know, they happen just very, very rarely and they're very hard to find. We know that, right? Because actually nature itself, we know, of course, we're not immune from this. And there was the stap cell scandal um, that's been sort of rolling on for a while um, where both papers arguing for this new type of stem cell had to be retracted. But the coverage this time seems to me to have been quite different. Many more media outlets picked it up and then many more of them were very self-flagellating afterwards when they were like, oh, no, we fell for it. I think some of this has to do with the topic of the research. I mean, it's a political science research, which might seem a little friendlier to general news outlets like the New York Times. Um, and the the conclusion of the study was provocative, but also easy to understand. And I think that that kind of factors into the kind of coverage that the study got and the way that the retraction has been covered with something like the STAP stem cell mess. The paper was fairly technical for general media. And the way that the misconduct was identified also required some explanation. Here, I mean, it's a broadly appealing study on a not particularly technical field. And the allegation is that the data were made of whole cloth. So it's fairly easy to understand every step of this. Do you feel, Lauren, as if the, there's a sort of danger of the court of public opinion here getting hold of this more easily as well then? Because it's easier to understand, easier to grasp what went wrong and what the original finding was. You know, it's not clear to me that the New York Times is right, that this is actually shaking um, public opinion. Um, you know, in particular, I used to cover climate change, and there was a lot of 
um, opinion polling after um, the so-called climate gate controversy a couple of years ago, where there was um, there were allegations by climate skeptics of wrongdoing by climate scientists. There didn't appear to be actual wrongdoing, but you know, news media reported the controversy, and there were lots of there was lots of prognostication about how this was going to change public opinion, and it didn't appear to change public opinion much at all in the long run. It's no bad thing, though, I think, that with extra public scrutiny, that might give universities a bit of a, the prodding that perhaps they need and, and funders to realise that research misconduct is still an issue that's there and it's not it's not going to go away. Um, just last week, I was writing um, a story over here about the fact that universities in the UK are they're failing to live up to this thing called the Research Integrity Concordat. And um, that was an agreement that was signed a couple of years ago, um, which came off the back of a government committee which said that oversight of research integrity in the UK just wasn't up to scratch. And so now they have to adhere to this concordat, which includes various different principles and recommendations. But one of them in there is that not only should they, they should investigate cases of misconduct in universities, but they should also publish the reports that detail those cases anonymously. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not going after individual researchers. But this study, this, this snapshot survey that was done found that very, very few were actually doing that. It seems like they're still trying to pretend that misconduct doesn't happen. When we know from cases like this, from the survey that Rich mentioned earlier, misconduct clearly does happen. So either universities need to, if, if they are already, if they do already have good mechanisms in place to find that misconduct and to take measures against it, then they should be telling us about it. Um, and if they're not, then they really need to be doing that in the first place. And in the US, there is some government regulation. Um... In the US, there's a body called the Office of Research Integrity, and they, they oversee investigations. So they have um, a bit more teeth than is the case in the UK, where we have just an advisory body called UK Rio. And we also have this Concordat, which is a kind of gentleman's agreement between universities. So it's got a bit more teeth in the States. But Lauren, I don't know what you think, but um, has it got a lot more teeth? The Office of Research Integrity does you know, investigate a lot of cases, they issue findings that often lead to retractions or penalty. But I think the standard kind of line here that you hear when you bring up ORI is that it doesn't do enough. There's an interesting case this week in Iowa, a researcher is going to be sentenced for misconduct related to some uh, AIDS research. And this researcher was prosecuted by the government in part because the senator, one of the senators from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, um, oversees NIH um, and took a personal interest in this case and pushed for prosecution. So, I mean, we do have some issues here where um, the the level of penalty can sometimes depend on um, whether you grab the interest of somebody like a senator. Richard, you're off to the World Conference on Research Integrity, very well-timed for the LaCour case. Is he going to be the, the talk of the town? Oh, I imagine so. So this is a conference in Rio uh, every two every two years. And the questions that this kind of conference ask is, what is the wider environment that, that leads to misconduct? And I should also say sloppy research. In fact, many people would say that sloppy research is a much greater problem than the occasional complete fraudster who makes up the entire survey, which is so rare and so extreme when it happens. But sloppy research maybe perhaps pervades the literature, as I think we've discussed before. So one question is, does the wider environment of the pressure to publish in high-profile journals to get the paper 
in science in this case, in nature and others, or in cell or in the Lancet? Does, is that pushing people to cut corners, to make up studies? It doesn't quite make sense to me because he's basically made up a paper which very swiftly got found out. That's the end of his career. So I'm not sure how that was beneficial in the long run, although he, he may have hoped to get a, away with it forever. And he did have a job lined up at Princeton, right, which I'm sure is on ice now. Yeah. And, and, and so people say, well, the environment is more difficult now and people want to get into high-profile journals. And there's no evidence for any of this. They just say it anecdotally. We don't actually know any of this. Um, certainly, I think that people will say that... Um, Education is one avenue to help transparency of data. And that's why sort of putting stuff like this in the spotlight, everyone hears about this, probably a good thing in the long run. What Lauren was referring to is punishment. Is that a, is that a deterrent? You know, if someone was slapped in jail, would that be a deterrent? I, I don't know, because I think that people who are so desperate as to make up an entire survey and potentially ruin their whole career will will do it anyway. <laughs> Um, but so this is the kind of questions that's going to be um, pondered at this world conference. So it'll be interesting to see what people say there about this. And Richard, you have, uh, in the name of integrity, we're going to tell our audience that you have a vested interest in this conference. They've asked you to give a talk. Yeah, I'm going to give a talk on the responsible reporting of research in the media. So lessons for scientists on how to responsibly present their findings. Slide number one says, don't make up your study. I can, I can give a sneak preview now. But I think the more interesting question is there is that scientists often grumble at reporters for sensationalising and making things up. There was a fascinating study published in the BMJ last year that showed that it sort of tracked the trail back from sensationalised research and found that in many cases the sensationalism was in the press release, sometimes in the quote of the scientist hyping what they'd done. So what we actually have is a chain of actors with incentives all the way along that lead to research getting sensationalised. Well, have fun in Rio. We're not at all jealous. Now, on to our second story, which is about these self-healing robots. Now, this is a paper from a team based in France who have built a hexapod, a robot with six legs, and then they've instilled in it thousands of different sort of behavioural motifs, if you like, and then asked it to basically choose which one it would like to do when one of its legs gets snapped. So it's a bit it's a bit mean, basically, what they've done. Um, and there are videos on the website of this robot sort of limping along and basically learning how to uh, how to renegotiate its territory with its one leg hanging off. So the cool thing about this is it is really one of those studies that moves us from, look, we've got a really complex machine to this has actually got some kind of not maybe intelligence, but ability to do things for itself. So you could always have contingency plans built in. You can always say, if X happens, then Y. But you know that if you're actually sending robots out into the field, that's not going to be very practical or realistic. It's always going to come up against some other kind of issue. So what they've done here is they've kind of used trial and error, really, to say say to this robot, they've given it a program that allows it to learn from whatever scenario it finds itself in, how to literally get back up on its feet and and toddle off. It's it's quite cute, isn't it, this little robot? It's really cute. And it looks it looks like it's doing something really simple because how do humans learn to walk? How does an a cat with one of its paws scratched, how does it learn to sort of get around in the garden? I mean these are things that we see and we're very familiar with and it just looks so simple, but actually it's very complex. Yeah, and it's following in a kind of trend at the moment of trying to make robots make their intelligence human or animal like this like reinforcement learning so you en- you're in a scenario um, and you use the feedback after a big trial and error process to actually decide what is the right course to take in this 
it was a little bit helped because it had built in some bunch of, I think, 13,000 different patterns that it could pick from. So in the story, which is uh, by one of our colleagues, Davide Castelvecchi, he describes it as a kind of instinct that they're programmed with. So that's true, I suppose. We, do, we don't start completely from scratch, do we? We get a little bit of help. Um, so it's not doing it from scratch either, which would be, um, I think, maybe even possible, but would just take an awful lot longer. This trend for machine learning to be based on kind of animal, human intelligence, something that evolutionists have kind of already done. Richard, was that a theme at the machine learning conference you've recently been to? Yeah, the Royal Society convened a machine learning conference in London last week. And the emphasis very much on robots uh, that used um, Bayesian theorems to update their understandings of how the world works, which is also believed to be how we humans learn about the world and update our expectations as we experience new stimuli or feedback sorry. in the world around us, like knocking a microphone there. <laughs> and then saying sorry afterwards. <laughs> and saying sorry. So this this robot is, is working the same way. It's instinct, it's pre-programmed about how it should behave and then something unusual happens, like its leg is broken and, and it tries something else and that works better or it doesn't work better and it kind of updates its response. There were some really cool robots actually at this conference. Um... So the the Roomba just sort of goes around your room randomly hoovering whatever it finds and bumping into things. But there's actually a robot from Dyson who are working with a, a team at Imperial College in London. They're getting the robot to recognise the room it's in and, and sort of carry that recognition in its head by continually uh, visualising the room uh, in the same way that human vision works, picking up corners of the room and, and orienting them in space. That basically means that it can go around the room and never return to the same spot that it's been in before. So it's like a kind of intelligent Roomba that knows where it's hoovered. Uh, and even if you drop it into a situation it's never seen before, like um, a battleground or, for example... Um, because vacuuming in battlegrounds is exceptionally important. <laughs> Got to keep the place tidy. Or, for example, disaster recovery. So, in fact, uh, machine learning programs were used for the first time um, in Nepal just to aid first responders trying to find out where people were trapped or trying to find sources of water based on um, signals around. So it's all it's all very early days, but these robots are starting to sort of understand their environment and to react to their environment in much more intelligent ways than before. There's actually um, the DARPA, the US Defense Department's research arm, has a contest going on now for robots that display this kind of machine learning for use um, in humanitarian assistance. Um, my favourite is one that looks like a headless chimp, actually. <laughs> Weird. What does it do? Um, so the DARPA challenge for these robots sets out a series of tasks. Um, they've already been through one call. I think they're going through another. And the tasks are things like going up and down stairs, being able to deal with debris, handling different types of situations you might find after an earthquake. Now, Lizzie, this isn't. Uh, this is only the the second time in recent months that we've talked about artificial intelligence. Um, and I'm thinking of researchers from the company DeepMind a couple of months ago, who published an algorithm that could sort of teach itself to play video games. Um, this this new paper where the robot fixes itself that sounds a lot more useful, wouldn't you say? I was disparaging about the video games before. I realise it's it's very similar the principle, and possibly you could apply what they've done at DeepMind two robots. So as I mentioned earlier, this um, this had some pre-programming into it. Now, the difference with the DeepMind program was that it, it, it 
had virtually no input whatsoever. It was just given these pixels. It was given the challenge just to up its score. And that was all. And from that, it figured out how to play these 49 different games. So what was exciting about that was it learnt to play very, very different games with different rules completely from scratch. Now... Here, if you threw this robot, I'm guessing, into some scenarios where it wasn't a broken leg, something else happened, I don't know, a block fell on it or something, um, it wouldn't know what to do because it doesn't really have the ability to work around that because it's not one of the options in its programming. So what you'd be hoping to do is to apply something like the DeepMind program eventually, someday, to a robot so that it had that ability that we really do have just to take in as much as it can from its environment and use just that and a few simple rules in order to, to navigate and negotiate its way out of that situation. So who knows, when I was, when I was at Google, because we recorded a video while we were there, um, I'm sure one of my questions was to do the robots and I, the press person said, no, we don't like that one. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so who knows what that means? <laughs> That's very interesting. Well. At the uh, conference, DeepMind were there, and um, they're now working on 3D video games, driving games, at which their program's doing very well, and lapping around all the other cars in a short video they showed us. And they also talked about giving their video game player a memory, so that it could remember from one game to the other what it was doing, rather than being retrained from scratch on every single game. What you'd want it to be able to do is to build up that memory on the job. So if in one scenario its leg broke and then it figured out how to walk, it could apply that in another scenario. Um, But yeah, that does take, that takes memory, which is difficult as well. Or if it ended up in an unpre-programmed scenario, like it fell on its back by accident off a wall, then at least it could be like, oh well, I can play Pong. Exactly, or Space Invaders. Or Space Invaders, quite. Well, it was very good. Or it can just, you know, pretend to be in a driverless car. That's where all of this is going. Um, This week, in fact, the 28th of May, it's quite the artificial intelligence special in nature. And there's an opinion piece about the ethics of automated robots. So we're talking about this on quite a cute level. I mean, it is really sweet if you watch the videos. But what if this robot we just met could mend itself and it had lasers? Are people talking enough about the slightly sci-fi sounding but kind of scary uh, well, outcomes some, of all of this? Somebody, a person, has to give it a laser in the first place. If we're developing robots that have the intelligence to come up with their own lasers, then that's something else, and we're very, very far from that. Well, um, there's only one thing, I suppose, Lauren, that should worry us more than invincible robots, and that is antibiotic resistance. Did you like that transition, everyone? Luckily, scientists have taken to looking in some quite crazy places recently, haven't they, for new antibiotic candidates? They have. I mean, in a sense, they're kind of returning to where antibiotics started. Um, You know, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin in the 1920s. Um, It was being produced by a fungus. And today, one kind of strain of research to find antibiotic alternatives is to look back at things in nature um, and see how useful they can be. So there are all kinds of interesting things folks are trying. My favorite um, are the predatory bacteria. These are bacteria that go essentially and eat bad bacteria. It's like a bad sci-fi movie. They invade the prey cell, they feast on it, and they replicate. And eventually uh, the, the prey cell explodes and a bunch of copies of the predatory bacteria go back out into the world to eat more prey. Um, so that's very much like a microscopic version of Alien. There are proteins coming called, to a drugstore near you. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, there are uh, proteins called peptides that destroy bacteria, um, and plants and animals and, and fungi all have peptides. But there are some animals that are especially hardy. Um, 
there's some reptiles and, and amphibians that have evolved to live in situations with lots of bacteria. So their peptides are kind of like super bacteria killers. Um, and so scientists are looking at whether peptides from species like frogs and alligators and cobras can be used in humans to kill bad bacteria. There's um, actually a drug that's based on a peptide taken from frog skin that's in phase three clinical trials now to treat foot ulcers in diabetics. Is there a sense in which kind of researchers are desperately, or perhaps not desperately, but perhaps productively um, scattering their research endeavours over a much wider field to try and find new antibiotics? Because for so long, uh, it was all about, you know, let's find a new version of penicillin. I think it's really that kind of the research is broadened. There are still you know, people are trying to find new antibiotics, but there hasn't been a new antibiotic approved in a very long time. There are a few really viable candidates out there. And I think what people have found over time is that, um, unfortunately, it looks like new antibiotics develop resistance to bacteria faster and faster. Um, so, you know, I don't think this is desperate. So, I mean, a lot of these concepts are things that have been out there, but there's kind of a new incentive to actually develop them. The bacteria that eat other bacteria that I mentioned, DARPA, the U.S. Defense Research Agency, just gave out almost $20 million in research grants this week, and they're interested. They have um, a program uh, where they're funding this type of research because they're trying to figure out how to treat soldiers who contract really nasty infections on the battlefield. Well, I don't know how we do it, guys, but Backchat always just ends up being quite sci-fi. Uh, so we've got bacteria that eat other bacteria in the manner of alien. We've already had the robots that heal themselves and jump back up to life again. OK, so I think that just about brings the show to a close, unless anyone has any other business. How I would long say. is it going to be before we're all replaced by AIs who do Backchat? Oh, uh, next month. Yeah, just FYI. <laughs> Limping robots as well. So just before then, we are all replaced by limping little robots that can play Pong. Thank you to our correspondents, Lizzie Gibney, Richard Van Norden and Lauren Morello. And for more of their reporting and editing, check out nature.com slash news. Do you enjoy Backchat? Send us your thoughts and your comments to podcast at nature.com or come and find us on Twitter at Nature Podcast, at Nature News and on the Nature News Facebook page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening.